Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I have a little bit of business we need to transact before we get going here, but I wanted to welcome our guest uh, back, uh, James Homan, who is a new columnist for the Washington Post, longtime author of The Daily 202. So are you enjoying uh, being able to sleep in on a regular basis now, James? I'm loving it, Charlie. It's it's uh, it's really fun, and I feel like I'm thinking more clear-headedly. <laughs> well, you have, you have longer to think about it, but so here's, here's my mistake that I made. It's not really a mistake, but it's just a kind of a cautionary tale. We send out the the emails uh, in the morning. I have morning shots, and it normally goes just to Bulwark Plus subscribers, but sometimes we'll send it out to just the whole world, you know, so about 105,000, 106,000 uh, go out. And I did it as a Rorschach test and asked people to respond uh, and gave out my email address, which was a huge mistake because <laughs> I had no idea. My email box is broken. It is completely unusable. So uh, I just feel like this is like a, a, a note in a bottle that if you're trying to contact me through email and I don't get back to you right away, it's because it is lost in thousands of responses. And, w- and what I asked James was, I, I, I kind of thought that story about the Biden administration buying 500 million vaccine doses to donate around the world. I thought of that as kind of a Rorschach test about what your politics would be, what we, what your first reaction would be. You know, did you think this is what America, you know, is about? This is what makes America good and great? Or, you know, why should we care about the rest of the world because America first? And are we really going to be sending those vaccines to shithole countries? And Or did you think, you know, how much does this cost? Or big pharma's evil and greedy or or maybe your first thought was that you can have uh, hundreds of millions of foreigners who'll be able to put a key on their forehead because they'll be magnetized so <laughs> I, I asked you know what, what what was your reaction just give me one sentence and I unfortunately gave out my own email address and wow but you know one of the reactions i got that surprised me i mean most people responded i think this makes america both good and great most people responded that way but a, a rather substantial number of people uh, responded by saying, why not more? Why only 500 million? Why not 5 billion? So I, I guess I, I hadn't included that in my options, but it's a big world. And there's a lot of people out there and there's, there's a substantial constituency for go really, really go big. James, just, um, you know. That's such an interesting, it's, it's interesting that, that that would not have been my take. I was kind of, I felt proud to be an American. I felt frustrated as I have that people aren't getting the vaccine here. It, it has it perturbed me that uh, we've had to give out so many incentives to get people to take this life-saving vaccine when so many people in the rest of the world, the developed and developing world, would kill for these things. And, you know, here we're offering million-dollar jackpots to, to do something to protect yourself. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think I would have been frustrated if the uh, administration was sending vaccine doses overseas three months ago when not everyone mm-hmm. who wanted a vaccine had been able to get them yet. But now uh, we clearly have more supply than there is demand. You see stories every day, like uh, a lot of the Johnson & Johnson doses that the government has bought uh, are about to expire because no one is taking them. Uh, and obviously, J&J, maybe not as good as Pfizer and Moderna, but still certainly protects you from dying. So, uh, which is I, a good I have, thing. I have some mixed feelings about it, and I can understand getting that whole gamut of responses. Well, the 
I, I think what makes this different, and your, your your point about three months ago, is that that literally no American will not be able to get a vaccine because we are sending it to the rest of the world. But this did remind me, and somebody made this point yesterday, and I can't remember exactly where I heard it, that this really does go back to that American tradition of the of, of the Marshall Plan, when you know, America used to do these unsorted acts that were really in our interest, but that also showed uh, that we were a, a compassionate and, and generous country. So it was, I, that was, that was my initial reaction that this has been a long time since we said to the world that we're going to do something extraordinary that nobody else is going to be able to do or uh, willing to do. Yeah. You know, I think of, I think George W. Bush's PEPFAR initiative on AIDS in Africa, mm-hmm. cracking yeah. malaria. I think that's one of those things where that was just, when you look at the cost benefit analysis, just an unadulterated success that, uh, you know, it, it fits in our very Christian tradition as a country of, of helping the less fortunate. Uh, but what I think is, you know, for so many decades now, foreign aid in air quotes has been demagogued. Uh, and, and sometimes foreign aid is too much. We have our own problems here at home to deal with. Uh, but I think that there's been a hesitancy in both parties to tout foreign aid because it just, sounds bad politically. But what we have to appreciate as a citizenry is that the Chinese are being far more aggressive than us. And while we have altruistic motives uh, of trying to save lives, the Chinese have soft power motives, which obviously we get some soft power benefits. But the Chinese are, are going into the Caribbean and Africa and even you know parts of Europe, and, they're in the, as are the Russians, but more so the Chinese, to give out vaccines which are not nearly as good as ours. Uh, and and they're getting dividends for that. And so I think it, it, there is a, a very pragmatic, uh, real politic reason to to give these out to the world. Well, I agree with that. I mean, this really is enlightened self-interest because also it is a worldwide pandemic and we're never actually going to be safe until the rest of the world is safe as well. So it is in our interest not to have, you know, exploding variants in, in other countries because uh, there's no way for us to to isolate ourselves. I mean, there, people may have these fantasies that we can build a wall around the United States, but when it comes to an airborne pandemic, that is just simply not going to work. All right, you had a really interesting piece about um, the insurrection and the January sixth, the, the 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 Senate report on what happened on January sixth. But but before we do that, I wanted to bounce something off of you because I find this a truly extraordinary political moment uh, involving the Bush dynasty, and 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 maybe it's maybe it's you know too easy, but I still find it really revealing on so many levels that not only do Republicans feel the need to curry favor with Donald Trump and to suck up to Donald Trump. We see that picture of Elise Stefanik post, you know, posing next to him down in Mar-a-Lago doing the, the thumbs up. But the people are willing to throw their own family members under the bus. This George P. Bush thing mm-hmm. is just so interesting. The, his willingness to repudiate members of his own family to curry favor with with Donald Trump. And of course, George P. Bush is the son of Jeb Bush. And he is uh, he's running for attorney general in in Texas against another Trumpian loyalist, uh, the incumbent, uh, sort of the the corrupt incumbent. uh, What is what is Paxton's first name? Ken. Ken Paxton. 
And uh, he, of course, appeared on, uh, you know, people are asking about, you know, why you're doing this and uh, why you put out a, you know, beer koozie uh, with uh, uh, Trump saying that he was the one Bush that he liked. I mean, it was really cringeworthy stuff. So, so here's George P. Bush uh, on Fox News last night. When you look at my policies, I, I'm all about America first. Uh, Trump is the center of the Republican Party. Um, I'm my own man. I support him. And we need to carry on that legacy, capture the lightning that he brought mm -hmm. to the Republican Party so that we can help all of our fellow Republicans down ballot. I am my own man. Yeah. Oof, James, I, you know, I'm JVL wrote about this the other day. You know, the, you know, George P is is special. I mean, he's a dynastic legacy case who is so ambitious, he's selling out his own family and not even selling them out for a good cause. He's doing it to suck up to an aspiring authoritarian strong man. There's really no precedent for this in American politics, is there? There's really not. And I thought JVL's piece was spot on. Yeah. He basically yeah. said, look, Ken Paxton is corrupt and uh, you know, terrible in, in not just for one thing, but a lot of things. But there's a lot more politicians like him, but we don't have a lot of people who are willing to throw their dad and their mom and their grandma and their uncle and their grandpa under the bus. Um, you know, if someone attacked my mom as a, a Mexican illegal. Yes. You know, I, I wouldn't not just <laughs> solicit their support. I would reject it if it was offered to me. Maybe that's why I'll never hold elected office in Texas. You know, Ted Cruz uh, turned the other cheek after Trump attacked his wife's looks a couple times and insinuated. Which was bad enough, right? Which was I mean, that was that. Yeah, that that was the bottom before this. Exactly. And <laughs> here, like, it, uh, it really, it, it's his read of where the party is. And I think it does say a lot about his character. And uh, and I think it's, it's really unfortunate uh, because – you know, you don't have to embrace every part of Bushism, but if you're going to say you're your own man, you also don't need to be tweeting out pictures of yourself on the phone, giddily talking to to Trump and uh, and, and saying you're a Trump Republican. Uh, you know, it's just I, and I've heard in response to my column on this from several former staffers to Jeb Bush to George W. Bush, a lot of Texas Republicans who say that this is just. It's, you know, that it's painful to watch, that it's hard for Jeb Bush to watch his son do this, uh, and that it's, it's frankly embarrassing for the, the whole family. Well, it's the mom thing that I, that I that I can't get past. So you mentioned, you know, Ted Cruz willing to overlook the fact that Donald Trump had made fun of his uh, of of his wife's looks, and of course, uh, he he also implied that Ted Cruz's dad had murdered John F. Kennedy. I mean, those are pretty big. I mean, that was kind of the gold standard for, you know, if can you get are, are you willing to overlook that to suck up to the the orange God King? You know, d dad assassinated Kennedy and, and your wife is ugly. I and mean, that's that's pretty bad. But in this particular case, George P. Bush has to overlook the fact that Trump had tweeted out things and basically racist slams uh, against his mother. For being Mexican, um, implied that his uncle was, you know, had committed a little light treason, um, had attacked his own father, Jeb, in, in pretty personal terms throughout the course of 2016. So uh, w what people have to swallow and what they're willing to swallow, it just keeps ratcheting up. But your mom. I mean, really, it's just, there really is no, I, I was, I was actually talking to somebody the other day and they were trying to explain this. Well, you know, understand in Republican politics, you have to do this business with a Republican basis. I said, wait, stop. You know, there, there's a water's edge for politics, isn't there? Or, or, or are we just like, so last century now? Well, it's, it's funny, Charlie, because, you know, I, 
there is another way. I think there is a better way. And and we'll see what happens with Liz Cheney and hopefully she wins her primary uh, in Wyoming. But this, you know, that's someone who wouldn't abide someone criticizing uh, her family and, and is staying true to her family's values uh, and, and has paid some price for it. But I think ultimately will be remembered kindly by history for it. Yeah, it is an interesting uh, contrast between the Cheney family and the Bush family. So this is one line here from from JVL's piece the other day about uh, about George P. said, uh, you know, arguing that there's no precedent for this in American politics. Look, say what you will about how far the Kennedy clan has fallen, but imagine Robert Kennedy Jr. crapping all over Bobby, Ethel, and Jack in the hopes that Hugo Chavez would tweet something nice about his anti-vax crusade. That would be the equivalent. It is. You'd really have to, you'd have to do that. So, all right, let's talk about um, your, your your piece, which I had a very interesting headline: the insurrection hiding in plain sight. And we had this report about uh, the the about uh, January sixth from the Senate that that really pulled its punches, didn't it? I mean, this is this is a, a long as- assessment that really doesn't uh, doesn't get at the heart of what happened. It doesn't, but it's still significant. It, it's and, it, and I think that it's important to figure out what really happened. Obviously, Donald Trump is a huge part of the story, but this does focus on on something that still matters, which is basically the security and intelligence failures uh, that led to uh, you know a, a bad response. Uh, so this you know this isn't the be all end all, but I actually think it was a a valuable step and. There clearly is a real problem uh, with the Capitol Police Department. Again, not the biggest issue in the world, uh, but it was. It's, it's just devastating the the number of warning signs that they had uh, for weeks and weeks that something bad was going to happen, and they're just really utter failure to prepare for or respond to it. Well, this is what you wrote. You said, when historians review the U.S. Capitol Police's embarrassing performance in the days and weeks leading up to the January 6th insurrection, they will surely retell the story of the locked bus, tale sadly reminiscent of the Keystone Cops. So tell me about the story so, of and, the locked bus. And no one has reported on this. It was actually, it's a it's an aside, a parenthetical in this 128-page report. And, and I hadn't heard about it. But so what happened was, you know, they knew there were going to be large crowds coming to the Capitol. And so they called up seven platoons of basically, uh, you know, riot cops. But they told them not to wear riot gear because they were concerned about the optics of having people in riot gear surrounding the Capitol. And so they were told to just show up in their regular, uh, you know, daily police uniforms. And then they said, well, if there's a problem, we're going to stage all of the riot, the shields and the helmets and the body armor on a, a bus. And then if, if we need it, uh, we can grab it off the bus. But then when things turned really hairy uh, and everyone who was coming over from the Stop the Steel rally started uh, uh, sieging the Capitol, uh, the, the bus was locked and no one could find the key. No one knew where the key was. And so all, the, you know, hundreds of police officers were were having to engage in basically hand-to-hand combat with these insurrectionists without any of their body armor. And it's part of the reason that I think ultimately something like 130 uh, police officers were were injured during that day. Why do you think 
that Mitch McConnell has drawn such a, a, a hard line against the commission. I mean, if you if, if we if we play the tape back to where we were in the middle of January, it seemed that there was going to be very strong bipartisan support for an independent nonpartisan commission, right? Public opinion polls showed support for it. It just seemed like the logical thing to do. Uh, you look at M- Mitch McConnell's rhetoric. Why do you think they've decided that they just do not want to have this commission? Well, you know, as, as well as I do, I think that the main reason is just a fear of Trump back, of Trump himself lashing out at McConnell and getting, you know, agitating to support primary challengers to people like John Thune. And, uh, and, and part of it is McConnell reading his own conference and McConnell feeling like this is his members don't want to go down this path. They don't want to be. Uh, relitigating this stuff next year in the midterms, but they're and, going to be anyway. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, they're, they're going to be relitigating it because Donald Trump is going to be relitigating it. So by doing this, they basically have committed themselves to we are never going to break with the president on in, on this at all. Like they, right up to the midterms, they agree. And I mean, I think McConnell, even though he's someone who's a student of history and has and has a very long view on everything, I think he believes that voters uh, uh, are amnesic uh, and, you know, that they have a very short memory and that by next year, I agree with you, we'll still be talking about Trump. Trump's doing these rallies. Trump's going to be out there, but that uh, people will have forgotten about the trauma of that day, especially if you can stop any more damaging revelations coming out. It's similar in some ways to the Mueller report uh, in, in the way that the, you know, the, the polls and even early on, people like Tom Tillis, even Lindsey Graham were supportive of letting uh, Bob Mueller do his work. And then, uh, you know, it kind of changed their tune because they thought, you know, Trump's going to be Trump. But as long as we can prevent more damning information from coming out, then uh, we'll be able to to change the subject or at least sufficiently muddy the waters to keep the, the focus on whatever culture war they decide to fight that week. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on this week. Uh, I retweeted you earlier today because you, um, after you said it's kind of, it's, it's refreshing to have a president of the United States go abroad without uh, without being gripped with fear that somehow he's going to humiliate the country. Um, and I, I obviously I completely agreed with that. But let's contrast the week that uh, Joe Biden is having and Kamala Harris. Uh, I think Biden is having so far a strong week. Kamala Harris had a terrible week this week. Or am I being too negative? You're not being too negative. Uh, and and uh, you know, I was uh, I was texting with a very prominent Democratic operative closely tied to the White House who was saying, "Yeah, you know, you're you're." I feel the same way about your tweet, but that doesn't apply to the vice president. <laughs> uh, and it's and it is a reflection that you know that it was a it's a tough trip. She didn't she she didn't have a good answer when Lester Holt from NBC interviewed her. Uh, you know about why haven't you gone to the border? That sort of gave fodder uh, for people to to criticize that, even if it is kind of a. a you know, it, it's basically about optics, uh, and and this is just not something she's done before. Uh, she doesn't have deep experience. I interviewed her uh, for my. I, we're launching a new mm-hmm. podcast at the Post tomorrow, and uh, you know, it was it was striking because our interview was late last week, and I asked her about it was about getting people back into the workforce after COVID, and I asked her about the the labor shortages 
and uh, the supplemental unemployment benefits. And it was really interesting because she kind of said, no one doesn't want to work. Everyone, uh, you know, wants to be employed and kind of gave this really strong, firm answer, pushing back on, you know, all, of the, all this data that people are getting benefits and not working. And, uh, and then the very next day, uh, both Jen Psaki and President Biden sort of backed off that position and said, you know, no, we want mm. these things to expire in September. So I, I do think that some of this is just growing into the role uh, and, uh, and, and being a little more nimble. I guess I'm I'm a little puzzled why they don't just tear the bandage off and, and send her to you know send her down to the border you know have her you know hug some kids and you know say the kinds of things that you normally do and then tell the progress you you've made it's almost like they've just dug in their heels on this because this has become a talking point on Fox News and the Republicans they they don't want to feed the beast but but. W- how could she not have been prepared for that question? Well, you'll have to remember, you know, when they first announced, I agree, when they first announced uh, that this was going to be her portfolio, the Harris people publicly kind of insisted that her portfolio does not actually include the border, that her yeah. portfolio is the Northern Triangle, that it's these countries like Guatemala and El Salvador where these caravans are coming from. And so I think part of it was, this desire to not own the border because obviously it is a mess uh, and not wanting that to be her mess. And, and then they kind of got locked down into this headspace where they, they can't just pull the bandaid off now without sort of basically in their view, tacitly acknowledging that the border is her problem. Uh, I think that that's a a short sighted uh, approach uh, and, uh, and, and they're going to have to, reconsider. But I also think they feel like public attention has sort of moved on, uh, that, that it's not outside of the, the kind of talk radio and Fox news, yeah. that it's not as resonant an issue as it was a couple months ago. So why draw more attention to it? But obviously the, the, uh, kerfuffle with Lester Holt shows that it is still a live issue and it potentially could be a really motivating issue for Republicans in the midterms. Let's talk about the midterms. I want to talk about something you wrote a couple of uh, days ago, how populism could help Democrats blunt the GOP in the midterms. So talk to me about that a little bit, about what kind of populism. And in the back of my my mind, the reason I'm asking this question is it strikes me that the Republicans and Democrats have two completely different definitions of populism. In a lot of ways, they're talking past one another. So give me your thesis here. Yeah, basically, it's it's. You know, not saying that that's substantively the best thing, and I agree that Republicans and Democrats view populism differently, and a lot of times populism, you know, maybe it gets over, it's in a reductionist way, overly simplified. Uh, But, you know, what I mean by that is that there's a lot of internal Republican polling that I've seen that's going around uh, that, you know, Democrats have been struggling with Hispanics, uh, working class folks, because, I think a lot there was a lot of frustration about some of the the overly severe COVID lockdowns last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there that you know a lot of I do think we're living through this once in a generation realignment. But they 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 need to show the working class who would be Democrats. Not all working class people are going to be Democrats, but that they need to shore up uh, some of these working class uh, voters that have drifted away, drifted toward. Uh, Trump, and that it's not enough for Democrats to just count on winning the suburban voters who were so rightfully revolted by Trump. 
but that, uh, you know, a lot of those voters are going to move back toward Republicans next year uh, because they are, they're center right, you know, we're a center right country and, uh, and they are going to want to put a break on what's happening in Washington with unified democratic control. So you can't count on, you know, suburban white women crawling over glass to vote against any Republican the way you could in 2017, 2018. And so you have to figure out a way to appeal to some of these people who voted for Barack Obama uh, and John Kerry. And, and I think talking about, uh, you know, the money in politics, talking about uh, corporate taxes, I think that there's a fear among a lot of Democrats to do that because it alienates their donor base, uh, but that it actually helps resonate with some of those voters whose support they're going to need to hold the House and Senate. Well, so the reason I was saying that the, 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 the two parties talk past one another, the Democrats seem to see populism in term, in, in economic terms, in terms of, of taxes, spending, various programs, um, whereas Republican, Republican populism – uh, it may be rhetorically anti-corporate, but it's basically just culture war stuff. Right. This is not an original uh, comment here. Um, and and so I guess what is your sense about the Hispanic vote? How much of that was a response to cultural populism on the right uh, while the Democrats are emphasizing identity politics and economic populism? Yeah, I think it's it's a it's an amazingly important question. I, I know so many Latinos who hate that Democrats practice identity politics to the extent that they do. You know, I, there was some Pew poll last year that showed that only like 2% of uh, Latinos talked about Latinx. And I was struck recently, I was reading through Elizabeth Warren's new book. And on the campaign trail in 2020, she always said Latinx. And it, back in her new book, she says Latinos again. And it's because that was something that's, you know, invented by some grad student somewhere. It's some, you know, w- w- trying to be inclusive or whatever, but that most Latinos don't even understand what Latinx means. And that's how the Democratic Party thought they were sort of relating to this community. So I think that it is, that's illustrative of broader problems where a lot of the culture war stuff that Republicans are talking about, I actually do think resonates with largely pro-life uh, Hispanics. The community is not a monolith. It's tens and tens of millions of people. Uh, but the, they, they, I think the, the bathroom stuff and, you know, a lot of the, the transgender athlete stuff, I think that that actually resonates with a lot of Hispanic voters who are sort of middle class, who feel like, to your point about populism, Democrats, when they talk about populism, you know, the, the that Democrats aren't focused on some of those economic bread and butter issues. Right. And one of the other problems is I think a lot of times when Democrats are talking to Latinos, they talk about immigration and they think, you know, like we're going to run a Spanish language ad. It should be about immigration. But most Latinos, frankly, don't really care. Uh, they're U.S. citizens. They're here. Uh, if you're not a Mexican-American, the, the wall is a lot less resonant. You know, if you're, a, 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 you know, a Venezuelan and Florida talking about the wall doesn't really bother you as much. So it, it, I think that Democrats need to realize you can't just talk about immigration when you're talking to Hispanics. I've also had a, a series of, of discussions with people on the left about after I, I tweeted and wrote that, you know, maybe we should stop using phrases like birthing people in place of mothers and fathers. And, and, and these 
these pained explanations about why, no, this is important to use the term birthing people. They say, hello, let's have a reality check here. You're talking to yourself. It's, it's exactly like the, the, the Latinx type type thing where you become you know fixated on something within your little silo and everybody on the outside is going, what are you talking about? You're basically signaling that you live in a completely different universe. Uh, same thing with issues like defund the police. If you have to explain that defund the police doesn't actually mean defund the police to people who don't want their houses and their neighborhoods to burn down, then you're losing the political argument. Right. And this does seem to be kind of a chronic problem uh, that some folks have. It is. And, and part of it is that uh, a lot of, of you know, Democrats get very into bumper sticker slogans. And, you know, the other one that caused them a lot of problems last year was believe women. You know, that was the mantra for years and years. And then someone like Tara Reid comes forward and it's like, well, don't not that woman. woman. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like defund the police. But no, what we mean by that is not defunding. And and it's it's the, the you know, now like I totally agree with you on the the you know the birthing people, which is ridiculous. And even the the other one that has made me cringe recently is the uh women and people who menstruate has been something that I've read more and more. And and I just think that you know if you criticize it, you're called transphobic, but it, that's exactly the kind of thing that that repels voters who don't feel like Democrats are talking about what matters to them, but they're talking about these, these esoteric things that have nothing to do with pocketbook issues. You know, it's funny that I'm, I'm reading uh, George Packer's book, um, which is really excellent, where he breaks down the, the, the four different Americas and he talks about the, the moment at which uh, the Democrats turned away from the white working class and decided they were going to embrace, you know, meritocratic, um, you know, norms and, with, you know, they were going to be, you know, embracing globalism, um, et, et, et cetera. In fact, there's one line in the book, I don't have it in front of me, where he says this was perhaps, it goes back to the Clinton era um, when they they were, you know, sponsoring these these events with the, uh, you know, with the, with the tech uh, titans and uh, opening the door to China. And, and he writes something like, "This may have been the exact moment that Donald Trump was elected president." But this is part of the problem in a party that is dominated by highly educated elites who speak in their own language and for a very long time now have not been speaking to working class voters. And I think that this is one of the questions is whether or not Democrats can figure out a way to cut through their own rhetoric and begin talking to people that they've neglected and lost rather, you know, dramatically. You want to talk about an historical realignment. It is really an amazing phenomenon, the way in which, you know, what used to be the heart and soul of the Democratic Party has been lost in one election after another. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and you mentioned earlier, Charlie, that Republicans are really good at uh, right now, you know, talking kind of rhetorically about being a worker party, but still not really changing their agenda. And I think Democrats, look, I'm a free trader and I want, I want, I want our leaders to make the case for free trade because it is good for the country. Uh, but I think that Democrats do a, have done a bad job at, at trying to explain, you know, like something like the TPP. And so it has, it has helped, you know, Republicans win over some of these voters because ultimately no one's making the case uh, for for you know the fact that TPP was about countering China, uh, you know, not empowering them. Uh, and so Democrats have totally fallen into that trap. And and then I think to your point, they've become super condescending toward anyone who doesn't sort of get it in quotes. And and that is a huge turnoff 
for so many voters that I've talked to around the country who I think, you know, are ancestral Democrats and just the, the, a lot of the condescension is that Democrats feel like they shouldn't have to explain to you uh, why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, the condescension and contempt are, can be really be deadly in American politics. So let, let's talk about what's, what's happening right now with the Biden agenda in Congress and the filibuster. I feel like we've talked about the filibuster almost endlessly, but um, this seems like the, the, the last week um, uh, seemed like a moment at which there was a reality check for Democrats that they are not going to necessarily be able to push through this FDR-like transformative agenda. So where are we at now on all of this? Is is this all going to grind to a halt because of Joe Manchin and uh, uh, and, and 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 other Democrats? Are are we already now in going to start wallowing in complete gridlock, or do you see a way out of it? Well, Charlie, I think that. Washington is going to do what Washington does best, which is spend money. Uh, okay. I think we're going to, you know, it's it, it, it's unfortunate. You know, they, the Senate just passed this China bill uh, they, because both parties realize that you can get people to vote for more spending if you say it's anti-China. And I'm all about countering China, but it's it's basically a couple hundred billion dollars that's not paid for. I think what's going to happen, there's a couple more bites at the reconciliation apple that they can get. And both sides want to spend money on infrastructure. They're, they're a couple hundred billion dollars apart. Obviously, negotiations hit a hiccup this week. But I worry what's going to happen is that they are going to find a way to pass a, a, a infrastructure bill that spends $800 billion. Uh, and that doesn't, you know, it's a lot harder to get people to vote for for revenue. And the two sides are far apart on revenue. And and so I, I, I fear that we're just going to see a lot more spending, but we're not going to see any kind of reform. Uh, you know, the thing about the H.R. 1, S. 1, it was always yeah. a messaging bill. And I think Democrats have really screwed this one up because it was never going to pass with 60 votes. It's really a Christmas tree of, of Democratic wish list stuff. But... Uh, they they kind of told their base, if you elect us, we're going to pass all this stuff. We're going to do redistricting reform. And now the base is cannibalizing, you know, going after Manchin. Joe Manchin's happy to be the heat shield uh, because he really is speaking for like 10 Democrats. Uh, but but uh, I think th- this is one of those things where Democrats have sort of been foolish because now they've alienated their own base and there is a risk that if they they're not going to they're not going to get rid of the filibuster they're not going to pass stuff like this frankly it never was going to pass but now you could have uh examples of liberals being angry come next fall okay this strikes me as as um, as tantamount to political malpractice um because you're absolutely right and i i tried to make this point a couple of months ago you know that hr1 was you know was this massive bloated uh gas bag of a piece of legislation that was not designed to actually pass there was no way it was ever going to pass it it did seem like it was uh, you know, as you point out, it was just all about messaging. But the message to the base was, this is democracy. If we don't pass H.R. 1, then democracy will die. When they should have known all along that it was not going to pass. So in the in the last several months, rather than crafting legislation that could actually win, that could actually persuade a Joe Manchin, that might actually get votes, um, or that might actually be more, you know, uh, you know get them closer to you know, uh, you know, creating the the momentum for filibuster reform, um, they kind of just stuck on HR one, and and HR one again, it was it was there was no way. So how did they manage to screw this up so badly? 
I think that this is one of those things where I, I, I think the, the short answer is Chuck Schumer uh, was terrified about getting a primary challenge and uh. she was, you know, thinking about getting challenged from his left in New York in 2022 when he's in cycle. And he basically was willing to kind of like give a, it's a bunch of different interest groups that want this stuff. And so he could give all these different interest groups something in this bill. Uh, ironically, there's so many different giveaways to interest groups in S1 that, you know, certain interest groups dislike other parts of it, like the NAACP is, and the ACLU are really uncomfortable with some provisions. Uh, you know, there a lot of African-American members of Congress actually uh, are fine with partisan redistricting, for example, because it, it ensures they have safe seats. Uh, you know, someone like Jim Clyburn in South Carolina has, has always been uneasy about a lot of these kinds of initiatives. And so it was you know, the effort to please everyone ended up achieving nothing and making everyone kind of angry ultimately at, at Schumer and members of his conference. Well, and, and you, you made the important point that uh, Joe, Joe Manchin is being vilified right now, although he's not alone. He is taking the bullets for a, a lot of other Democrats who basically take the same position. There's also something odd about this because all the, the attacks on, on Joe Manchin and the threats against Joe Manchin. Look, if you don't have Joe Manchin in the Senate representing West Virginia, who do you think you're going to get? You're going to get a West Virginia version of Louis Gomer. Right. Uh, you're, you're not going to get an upgrade. Um, he's the only conceivable Democrat who could ever be elected in West Virginia. So what exactly do you think you're accomplishing by beating the crap out of Joe Manchin? How do you advance anything? It baffles me. It, it is just it, it is baffling and it's frustrating. And I think people want someone to be angry at on the left. And it's so short sighted. And, you know, I don't think Manchin's going to change parties. Uh, and I do think Manchin is sort of okay uh, with it. But Manchin, you know, I, I think that there is some risk of alienating Manchin. Ultimately, you know, when you think about West Virginia politics, Manchin wants to spend money. Like Manchin wants to call up mayors in small town West Virginia and say, I just voted for this infrastructure bill and reconciliation that's going to give you $14 million for this, uh, you know, a new city hall and new broadband. And, and that is where Biden's agenda is going to end up going. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the left is kind of, they're trying to get their licks in, but it is uh, kind of baffling to watch. And I do think it, it is just, it's, it's so emblematic of a lot of the problems that Democrats are going to have going forward because to be a, a majority party, especially with the way the Senate is structured, you're going to have to find ways to have people like John Tester from Montana and Joe Manchin sure. uh, from West Virginia, but even Maggie Hassan uh, from from New Hampshire. You have to find a way to elect those people, and you have to understand that uh, Kristen Cinema, they're not going to support every single liberal wish list item. So let's go back to the the, the, the spending. Um, because this is something that Washington does and both parties like to do. They like to spend lots of money. Why have we not had a bipartisan deal on infrastructure? This strikes me as one of the easiest things to do is to come up with an agreement to spend hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars. So where do you think we're going on all of that? The, the talks broke down this week. Do you think that there will be a bipartisan deal? So the big holdup, Charlie, the reason it hasn't gotten done is revenue. And I do think part of it is that uh, Biden actually does feel like he made this promise not to raise taxes on anyone 
who makes under $400,000 a year. And he's been around politics long enough to know that he'll get you know slaughtered if he backs down off of that promise. And he sees a gas tax uh, and user fees as a, a tax on people who, which it is. Uh, right. And, and so I think that the, there's a lot of sense in saying, okay, well, like, let's raise the gas tax to pay for roads because it's the people who are using the roads should pay for them. Uh, but, but I do think that that's a red line for Biden just because he watched what happened to George H.W. Bush in, you know, 92. And, and so I, I think that that actually has been the biggest holdup. And ultimately, like I said earlier, I do think where this ends up is just Biden wanting to get something done and to put points on the board. So agreeing to just spend a bunch of money without paying for it at all and saying that I, I, ultimately it's going to pay for itself with more economic development, which will be totally, you know, BS. But th- I think that's where we're headed. No, and, and I think you're right because they both want to spend money. They don't want to raise taxes. That's that's going to be complicated. Um, uh, and neither party really gives a shit about the deficit anymore. So why not? And so they'll, they'll, find, they'll find a way to paper it over. They don't give a shit because voters don't. You know, it, no one, ever, it's kind of one of those things, where, and it's unfortunate because people should, and but they're just, they're not, no one's really getting blowback. And then, you know, so many Republican senators lost credibility on this issue, uh, you know, over the last four years and over the last eight years and Democrats have never really cared. And, and th- so it is, it's super problematic because we are, you know, it, when you look at that $1.9 trillion American rescue plan, you have all these states right now that have these giant surpluses like California, you know, $50 billion or something. And that's money that we've taken out as a loan that we're going to have to pay back with interest. And, you know, it's just, it was clearly way, way too much money and it wasn't paid for at all. And, uh, and, and none of that is waking people up and we are going to have a very painful come down eventually when the sugar high runs out. But, that that's not going to happen this year. Well, uh, earlier this morning, we we got some new uh, inflation numbers in. Prices jumped five percent in May, which is the largest increase since uh, the Great Recession. Um, people are saying, yeah, I guess the administration saying it's just temporary. But h- how worried should we be about inflation? How does this play into the uh, the the spendathon that we're predicting is going to come out of Washington? I'm I'm less worried about inflation than others. I'm not unworried about it, but you know, ultimately, yes, it is the inflation's like five percent right now. It's the highest you know since the Great Recession and since the early '90s. But it's still a fraction of of what we were seeing in the '70s when you know, it was fifteen percent. Uh, and but we are there's too much money sloshing around in the system. In some ways, that's going to prevent a really painful recession. Uh, we're going to have to pay for it later. But I I don't think that it's intrinsically as as alarming as as a lot of Republican campaign committees are trying to make it out to be. Okay, so um, how much should we read into the uh, primary results this uh, week in in Virginia and New Jersey? Um, one narrative is the the Democratic establishment uh, had a had you know good week. Uh, the far left candidates have lost, uh, so it's another uh, another data point about the fact that the the, the Democrats are still um, comfortable with a centrist direction. Yeah, fair? that's right. I think that that is fair. I think that you know the uh, I think. Joe Biden beating Donald Trump. If Biden had lost to Trump, I think that we'd see like a lot of crazy socialists winning some of these primaries, maybe not in the Virginia governor's race, but uh, the fact that Biden beat Trump and is doing, you know, is, is, is been liberal, uh, it allows someone like Terry McAuliffe to appeal to, 
to liberal voters. It just makes people more comfortable with some of their throwbacks. Uh, I, I think that the low turnout is a big warning sign for Democrats. Now, Republicans obviously had kind of that weird modified convention where turnout was pretty low uh, relative to even what was expected. I think, you know, like half as many people as registered actually showed up to vote. Uh, but the, the Democratic turnout was really low. It was slightly higher than 2009 uh, when, when Bob McDonnell, the Republican, won the Virginia governor's race by 18 points. But it was far lower than in 2017 when people were so angry at Trump and showed up for Northam in big numbers. And there was a competitive Democratic primary that year. So I do think it's a problem for Democrats that turnout is so low. And frankly, I've been, you know, I, I really think that Republicans could win the Virginia governor's race this year. Uh, mm. doesn't have mm. a paper trail. Biden won the state by double digits. Uh, but this is, it's exactly the kind of dynamic and national atmospherics where the Republicans just not super objectionable. He, you know, Democrats will spend a hundred million dollars trying to tie him to Trump, but he's really not closely tied to Trump. And, uh, and this, this, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Republicans won the, the governor's race. Hmm. All right. One, one last question. Um, this uh, inspector general's report that was uh, released yesterday saying that when the park police, um, you know, led law enforcement officers into those peaceful protesters outside Lafayette Square last June, um, they did so as part of a plan made days earlier to build a fence around the park to protect police officers. And it was not intended to facilitate the visit minutes later by President Donald Trump to a nearby church. Look, I'm 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 sorry, but I'm having a hard time buying this. I really am. Yeah, me too. And I think it's okay. it's one of those things where a lot of the the you know Trump is claiming this is totally exonerated, yeah. but it doesn't do that. Uh, you know, it, it it this timing is suspicious of when they did it versus when Trump did his photo op. There's a lot in this report that is redacted, and uh, and ultimately, like the the I think the key thing is last week in federal court the government acknowledged that they did use yeah. uh, tear gas against civilians who, you know, were not warned to leave. were not violating any rules. Uh, it clearly was unnecessary. And, uh, and, and the Trump folks insisted adamantly and on the record last summer that they did not use tear gas. And now yeah. the justice department is admitting in open court that yes, tear gas was used. We knew that at the time you know, there were tear gas canisters uh, that were, you know, that were left over. But Trump and his people vigorously denied. They demanded a correction in a story I wrote that said tear gas. Uh, and and so the idea that Trump has somehow been exonerated for the the horrible behavior at Lafayette Square last summer is is bunk. Yeah, I, I I think so as well. We're 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 also waiting for the the correction from uh, Molly Hemingway from Fox News and the Federalist about all of this. So, uh, James Holman, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it very much. You can find uh, James's work at the Washington Post, and he's the host of a new podcast uh, at the Washington Post because Lord knows that's what America needs right now. An, another new pod, <laughs> another podcast, right? Exactly. So, James, thanks a lot. Thank you, Charlie. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>